welcome to episode 77 of Control the Controllables. I'm delighted today to bring Dave Samuel to the podcast. Dave has dedicated his life to tennis and certainly to British tennis over the last 30 years. Uh, similar to Colin Beecher in the way that pretty much he's worked with most top British men or women. And when I say worked with, that might just be a conversation. That might just be a conversation at dinner. You know, you'll you'll hear from the podcast, Dave is, is very impactful in the way that he is. He carries a real aura about him, you know, and... The proof is in the pudding. You know, he's had he's had some fantastic success over the years. He's always been someone I've known but not really got to know. And and I think he does carry carry a certain not always the most accessible guy coming from coming from the outside, which I think Dave will also admit himself through the podcast. Uh, so to have two hours with him was such a treat. To, to just get into and like Dave says at the end of the podcast just a fireside chat you know I, I took so much from the chat uh, he really doesn't hold back Dave with his views he's very open with that and it's very clear to see why he's had so much success and once again it brings home the the, the complete involvement that's required in this sport you know this is not a sport that you can just dabble your hand at it, it has to be a lifestyle if you're going to really do it to, to the level that, that so many people want to do, but so few people do. Uh, once again, guys, thank you. Like I say, episode 77, we're still rocking and rolling. We've got lots more, lots more to come for you. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your ratings, your reviews. Uh, we currently have, if you're listening to this within the first week of it coming out, we currently have an opportunity to win a free access week to Soto Tennis Academy. Uh, so have a little look on our Instagram page on that. Get yourself entered. And part of the entry of that is to do a little rating and a review on, on the Apple Podcast app. If you could do that, that'd be fantastic. If not, we still love you. It's all good. And you guys have a great weekend, have a great day, have a great evening, wherever you are. For now, I'm going to pass you over to Dave Samuel. So Dave Samuel, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, yeah. I'm in uh, Bratislava. Uh, just flew in last night. It was a... Uh, a bit of a, a hairy day yesterday, but I got lucky. So basically, I got a, a message through on uh, Wednesday night that I needed a, a, a negative COVID test to even okay. enter the country. And so uh, <laughs> I Googled quickly express COVID test and I was in Bath uh, and uh, drove up to Birmingham to an express place there. Right. Uh, got the test and they couldn't guarantee that they'd get it to me before 9 p.m. But I said my flight's at 6.30. And also they had to have a printed copy. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow it to be shown on the phone. Uh, anyway, they did brilliant for me and I got it. I got it at quarter past five in the evening. Wow. 
hustled at Manchester Airport to get it uh, printed. Uh, and so, and also uh, Liam had sent me some string to the hotel in, in Bath. Yep. And I told him I'm expecting a package and I phoned Parcel Force because I said, you know, they'd sent it back to the sender. So what happened? They said, well, the hotel refused it twice. So I went downstairs pretty fuming. Yeah. Uh, and the lady went, oh, yes. Well, the name was spelt wrong. So they'd put David Samuel instead of Samuel. And they'd sent it back. So all Liam string. But luckily, Liam had said, sent half to uh, the hotel and half the, another half to his mom's house. Okay. So I did a detour to his mom's house and picked up his string. Oh my uh, goodness. So, uh, but all in all, I mean, just incredibly fortunate, lucky day. But yeah. here I am. <laughs> but that's again, I, I, what I love about that story, Dave, is that is the reality. And I'm sure you've got so mm. many stories like oh. that, even before COVID. You know, of yes, like yeah. things that go on behind the scenes to make trips, to make flights, to to change your plans at the last minute and all of those things. And I have to yeah. also say to the listeners, because by the time you, you hear this, it'll be maybe a few days on, but you're in Bratislava, but your player playing in a quarterfinals in Italy, <laughs> Italy today. So how, how's yeah. that worked? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'll watch him on live stream. I have been uh, yeah. this week and then uh, we talk after each match. I mean, live stream is good because it gives you a good idea. But one of the things about live stream and video is you can't really tell the speed of the court. Yeah. You can't tell the height of the bounce because the camera's always just yeah. just high and, and the height over the net. And it's really difficult to kind of see weight of shot and, and, and yeah. pace of shot. So you, you rely on the player to give you that kind of feedback. And then you, you kind of piece a few things together uh, to, to try and help. Uh, but it's just, certainly it's better than not seeing anything at all. And uh, also, I guess, Dave, on that, it just jumps in my mind as well. I've actually been fortunate enough to sit in a in a box at Wimbledon with you, court number one, with when Liam was playing Ramonich. Yes. And and one thing that I, I remember this distinctly, you wanted to switch seats so that your eye line could be in line with Liam, not to coach as such, yeah. but for, for that emotional support, for that moral support, you can kind, you kind of connect with the player and see. So I guess those are the things also you can't pick up on live stream or, or add or impact. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're there as a support and in, in, in tough moments, uh, it's just natural to to look at your sport support and you know you know if they're like yeah come on you know and and and, and showing that support but also the eye contact is is really important because yeah. I think they 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 know and feel when you are totally engaged in the match with them yeah. and uh, you know it's it's that connection is really I mean I'm sure every coach will tell you that connection yeah. is is crucial also to trust yeah. Absolutely. That's why I don't uh, I don't make that many notes uh, in matches. Yeah. Uh, I try to keep them really short. I used to do it on the phone, but it kind of looks like you're texting someone, yeah. and and I just don't think that's a good look for the player. So if I make notes, I I, I always do it on paper so the yeah. player can see you writing, so they realize that yeah. it's it's about them. 
you know, I was watching on live stream yesterday on on Amazon Prime, uh, Neil and Jamie playing against um, Kubot and Mello. Yeah. And at four all in the third set tiebreak in what was, in my understanding, was a massive match because I think yes. J- Jamie and Neil won. I think they qualify for, for the O2 end of year. And I said to the person I was watching with, a coach, I said, Kubot Mello, 100% win this match. And they said, why? I said, look, they are so engaged. And, and But what they were doing is they were using their coach. You could see it. They were using their yeah. coaches at the side. You yeah. know, every point was full on, you know, and like, yeah. and and I and I and I do think, especially in doubles, you know, that that kind of energy that you can in a tiebreak situation, and I just again, no disrespect to Jamie and Neil, but I I from watching on live stream, I was just urging those boys to bring a bit more, you know, where you know the energy, and I yeah. almost wanted to be at the side of the court to be saying, come on, boys, right now, this is the moment, you know, and it's those are again the things I think a lot of people don't quite see in in our sport. I've got a good story uh, on Davis Cup uh, when we played against USA. So uh, it was uh, obviously Tim and Greg. Um, I think uh, Miles was on that team who I was coaching. Um, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Miles. Might have been uh, Andy Richardson, but I'm pretty sure it was Miles. Um, and it was at uh, the Birmingham NEC. Yeah. And obviously a big, big match. I think it was quarterfinals of Davis Cup. And uh, Henman played Courier. Oh, the America match, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was winning easily. And Justin Gimmelstop came out of the changing rooms with a pan and a frying pan. <laughs> okay. And the Americans must have had about... 20 guys now sitting on the side and every time Jim like won a point, he was banging this frying pan with a pan yeah. and, and they were just screaming, you're a warrior, you're a warrior. <laughs> and, and he started to come back and you could see the energy surging and, and the feeling because Jim was really on a low point of his career. He was right, okay. kind of on the seemingly on the way out and, and, and not in a good place. But this noise and this banging and everything uh, started to lift him. And I remember sending a note down to uh, John Lloyd, who was the coach at the time, and David Lloyd was the captain, you know, saying, we need more guys on the bench to even this out. Uh, But, you know, uh, obviously they're in the middle of the match. So they, you know, we were sitting, the crowd, the British crowd obviously was very loud. But it was about, you know, if you know the NEC, about five meters back or six meters back from the court. So not intense there. Anyway, uh, Tim ended up losing that in five sets. And uh, uh, the noise, I think, also was getting to Tim because when when Jim was on the far side and he won a point, of course, there's this huge noise and, you know, right in Tim's ears all the time. I, I definitely think that they won the psychological battle there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I told David that evening, I said, we're losing the psychological battle. We've got to even out the numbers on the bench. Yeah. Uh, and he said, well, I'll ask Tim and Greg, but I don't think they'd like that. I said, okay. Anyway, I remember we were having a meeting with Richard Lewis 
at like midday and I think the double started two or something like that. And David walked in with all these GB track suits yeah. and there was a, a bunch of uh, uh, national coaches there. And uh, he said, uh, we want you all on the bench. Right. And I tell you what, for that doubles, uh, which Tim and Greg won eight, six, I think, or nine, yeah. seven in the fifth. Yeah, I remember, yeah. We were all on that bench there and we got so loud. And I remember uh, Richie Ranneberg serving to stay in the match. And, and at 15.30, we were so loud. I could see him like shaking his head and like literally trying to get rid of this noise. And, and you know, over the course of all this time had, had literally, I felt like gotten to him so badly yeah, yeah. and they ended up breaking there and winning the match. So I, you know, people can argue one way or another, but I'm, I'm a strong believer that you, you have to, you know, uh, certainly try win or, or equal those psychological battles. And yeah. what you've just said is you felt that uh, Jamie and Neil were not matching yeah. the psychological battle there. No, no, absolutely. And, and, and actually, I remember you saying it to, I remember you saying it to the boys, actually, Luke Johnson and Evan Hoyt, because again, to those yeah. listeners, and by the way, I've not even introduced you yet, Dave, we've jumped into, <laughs> this is how, this is how this podcast is going to go. And this is going to be, a, I've been really looking forward to this one. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you guys, I'm sure a lot of you do know Dave, but Dave, Got to a, a career high eight three one as a player, singles player, and then has very much made his name as as someone who over the last 25, 30 years has just been so heavily involved in British tennis. And we'll get into his story. You'll hear from the accent he wasn't originally from from the UK, but has contributed in so many ways, coaching. I don't even want to go into all the players because there's so many, but your Arvin Palmer's, your Miles McLaggins, your Martin Lees, and then over the last few years, Liam Brody. And, and, uh, and I just think, yeah, there's going to be so many little rabbit holes we can keep jumping into, Dave. Um, yeah. I do want to actually quickly move to, to current, you know, and I, and I have to on air give you a massive credit and also Liam Brody a massive credit as well. And just, I guess, for the listeners, over the last few months, there's been a very noticeable shift with Liam over, you know, he's obviously, he's had an up and down few years. Um, what, what would you put that down to over the last few months? And obviously good luck to him in the quarterfinals today. Um. I think, I mean, this is the third time in, in our journey that uh, he's come back into the top 200. Yeah. Uh, the first time he was only 20 years old and uh, I, I, I joined his team. Um, and uh, it went very, very quickly then from like, I don't know, he was about 320 or something like that. Uh, in well, you know, well inside uh, top 200. Um, and then, uh, um, he, he got offered, uh, cause I was working together with Mark Hilton yeah. and then the LTA offered him Mark for free yeah. full time. Cause Mark was helping Bambridge and Ward Hibbert at the time as well. And, and kind of, uh, doing both. And, you know, he, Liam was making some decent money then for the first time. And I think he, at that time probably felt he had gotten, you know, uh, uh, enough out of me or whatever. And, and of course he had to pay for me. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, we split then, uh, and, uh, 
you know, it didn't go as well as he would have liked. Um, and, uh, you know, it was about 18 months later uh, when he called me yeah. and said, you know, can we try again? Yeah. And we've been together ever since. And again, he went back inside 200. And then yeah. 2018, which crazily enough was on the brink of being a great year, turned into a really horrible year for him. Yeah. But the start of that year uh, he, in Australia in open qualifying, he played Berrettini first round and played a fantastic match and was 4-1 up serving in the third set breaker and got full body cramp. I mean, literally his body had to last five minutes longer. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he had broken the back of that match. Yeah. And, and, but the worst thing is the cramp got into his left hand, yeah. so he couldn't hold the racket properly. And, and, and didn't win another point. I mean, he tried, but uh, it, it was gone. So, you know, and we know what's, you know, Berrettini yeah. went on to qualify and, and you know, is now, what is it, top 10? Yeah. Uh, or, yeah. Um, I'm not saying that Liam would have replicated that, but at that point in time, uh, he was playing uh, really, really good tennis. Um, and then carried on, he made semis of Rennes and, and, and was going pretty well. Uh, uh, I think uh, that's when he qualified and made second round of uh, Miami. Yep. And then after that, I said, let's go for a stint on the clay, on the clay, a long stint yeah. to really work on developing the, the height on the forehand yeah. and, and just you know, a little bit more grip and rip. Uh, but I think because he had, started the year well and, 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 you know, obviously Australia was disappointing. He, he really wanted to do well on the clay. Yeah. Even though I'd said, this is a developmental period. It's not about the yeah. results, but he played that whole clay court season wanting to win. Yeah. And therefore the development that, that I hoped, yeah. uh, didn't materialize. And then he had a, 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 a tough, loss at the French Open. Yes, I um, remember that. But again, uh, he, he, he was just wanted to win, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, he, you know, he lost a guy he'd beaten a few weeks earlier. But, uh, you know, he was also getting a bit stubborn at that. And, you know, he can get stubborn at that time. And, you know, we talked a lot about swinging the left he serve. And I remember on, uh, on set point there, uh, eight, seven in the breaker, you know, he went for the big T yeah. <laughs> and then uh, uh, lost that point in the match. So, and then we went onto the grass and he had, you know, he lost his shardy six and five. Uh, uh, Alex Ward uh, was well ahead. Uh, and uh, I think he actually had a match point. He did. Yeah. And the same situation arose. He was serving in the breaker uh, match point and didn't swing his serve. Yeah. which was just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 lost, ended up losing that match. And then uh, he played Stokowski yeah. in Ilkley. Ilkley beautiful. Yeah. 6-4-5-1, 40-15 serving. Yeah. Uh, you know, he lost that point. But at 40-30, you know, we'd had fairly strong words. He did swing his serve. And he literally had a volley on top of the net and, you know, took his eyes off it and, and missed that. 
and ended up losing that match. And Stokowski won that match to get a wild card for Wimbledon. Uh, so, you know, Liam contributed to his pension plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that really took the win. Then you saw him play Ryanich, which was a really difficult match coming in with, you know, on the back of, you know, uh, just three losses, you know, no wins. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that as was a, a, a rough experience for him. And I think he was a bit shell-shocked in that match. As a side note, though, Dave, on that, how hard does Raonic hit the tennis ball? Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, that, that serve, especially when, you know, he, he got comfortable in that match. So his second serve was, you know, 120s, you know what I mean? Yeah, 135 was, sometimes. Second yeah, serve yeah. Sometimes. So, so uh, and, and Liam was not in the right headspace to, yeah. to, to tackle him. And from there, the year really fell away uh, pretty bad, though he did beat Dan Evans in Stockton. Yeah, he which, did, he did, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, which was a little resurgence, but he, he lost to Pullman's then, uh, being well up again and just uh, had some crazy thoughts in his head uh, and, and then went to China and, and did poorly there. And, and we went to India which I think he mentioned in his podcast, which was a really low, low time for him. Yeah. And so he had 18, uh, no, 20 first round losses that, that year, or 18 yeah. first round losses. So his ranking went back down again. And then in 2019, it, you know, we've, we've rebuilt and he's back in the top 200 now. But yeah. this time, you know, going back to your question, I think uh, the, the, the lockdown, he, he did a lot of physical work in the lockdown. Yeah. And, and went to, I mean, he's always been a good athlete and, and in good shape, but he, he went to another level physically. Yeah. And I think just mentally uh, uh, matured quite a lot. Uh, did some crazy things in lockdown, like change his grip on his forehand without telling me. Yeah. <laughs> and Instagram uh, Live, became an Instagram Live yeah, star. Yeah, yeah, uh, which, is, which is great. And then uh, uh, after... Uh, the Alex Ward match. So he played Andy Murray and Alex Ward in the Battle of the Brits. Very poor. Uh, we had some very strong words. And uh, and really and truthfully, I mean, the bottom line was, you know, I, I did say I was, I, I'm, I'm getting bored with this. You know, yeah, yeah. you know what you have to do. And, you know, you, you tend to seem to listen to me when you get in trouble. Yeah. But this time you need to listen when, yep. when you're in, in actually a good place. Yep. And, and since then, uh, something's clicked in terms of our relationship as well, in terms of the communication. Okay. It's, it's pretty much daily. Uh, he's on it. You know, the focus is, on, is at another level. And by the time we got to the French, um, obviously, it's, it's, it's a, probably the most difficult slam to qualify for. Yep. But I was quietly confident. I, I was not surprised that he qualified. Yeah. I felt he was in a really good place. And, and the focus was that nice blend of, of on it and relaxed. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he's, uh, and, he's, and he's built on that as well, hasn't he, since yes, as well, which has been great yes, to see. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, this is, for the, this time, it feels different. I think for the first time, he he not just logically understands how he needs to play. Yeah. He's got it emotionally. And, and I always say that players logically understand everything. Yes. But until they've learned it emotionally, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't stick in matches. 
Yes. Or and and then then careers tend to happen purely on momentum. When they're feeling good, it goes well. Yeah. When they lose the feel, they really struggle to to still win any matches because they don't really feel how they need to play exactly they've lost that feel whereas when they emotionally understand it it's like okay i'm not executing that well right now but as soon as i do i'll be fine yes that's a really nice point and can i just just take you back a little bit dave like you said something that i think for the listeners i think you going into a bit more depth on i think would be great because you kept talking about he wanted to win and basically, basically, what you were saying is he didn't win because he wanted to win, <laughs> which, which I guess to the list, it'll be like, well, of course he wants to win, of course players want to win. So, can you give us a little bit more detail on that and why, why that absolute kind of takeover of just wanting to win can actually be detrimental? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, sport is so fast; it's instinctive. You have to be instinctive. And that's why you practice so much so that everything can be instinctive. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you get a lot of experience as a coach, you can literally see levels. Yeah. And part of the levels. So, you, you know, even the, the small uh, uh, margins between challenger and tour level, is is the how relaxed players are on court yeah and the higher you go the more relaxed they are yeah and because when you relax because tennis is is quite you know it's actually a loose sport you have to be loose to to generate pace you have to be loose to move well um and being relaxed allows you to be loose and the problem with wanting to win, of course, everybody wants to win. Yeah. So it's it's almost like saying, you know, I need to be fit for tennis. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it, it's it's not non-negotiable. Yeah. <clears throat> and wanting to win, everybody wants to win. Yeah. But in wanting to win, often players then think about winning, and think about what they have to do to win. Now, when you're talking about something that's instinctive, that the very thoughts create hesitation or split second delay. So they suddenly see a short ball. It's like my chance, my chance. And they they run up and they just, you know, a little bit too excited. And then they, they overplay, but because their mind is like my chance, my chance. And then it just doesn't flow. Yes. And, and you have to flow and and thinking slows you down you know the 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 automatic movement i mean you don't think when you're walking come on one step one step keep your balance <laughs> you just yeah, walk yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know and 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 ultimately when they say you're in the zone it's like you're just walking i mean you you're playing tennis without thought yeah now whilst that's a lovely place to be you can't be in that place all the time it doesn't matter how good you get yeah so therefore um, the best players in the world are able to manage their minds best when they're not in flow. Yeah. And that's the key that when they're not in flow, they can still say, stay relaxed. I don't know if you've ever watched the match. I mean, I think Sampras was a great example of this. If he wasn't playing very well, he looked lethargic on court. Yeah. 
Yeah. He looked like he wasn't trying. Yeah, yeah. But actually what he was focused on is staying relaxed yeah. until he found it, until he had a few yeah. hits that felt good. Yeah. Uh, rather than tense, you have like, come on, you can do this, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, and that's why, you know, people get paid so much money to be unbelievable at this yeah. game is because yeah. that blend of, you know, working hard and, and, and fighting for every point yet being totally relaxed is an incredibly tough blend to find. Yeah, it is. And of course, you know, we spoke about already emotionally, you have to trust your game yeah. a lot yeah. so that you, you, you don't totally lose your way when, when you're not executing well. Yeah. No, very good. I, I remember one of the things that really sticks with me actually from my playing career, I was playing doubles with Freddie Nielsen, actually. And we'd, we'd beaten the day before Stephen Huss, who was actually my one of my last guests on the podcast, and he just won Wimbledon. And James Auckland, who was a former partner of mine, but they were, Steve was about 20 in the world, James was about 50 in the world at the time. And me and Freddie had beaten them the day before, and then the next day we were playing a match that we should win on paper, the old classic, you know, expectation goes up and, yeah. and we lost the set 6-3. And what I was doing is that exactly that. I, I was, my mind, and the only success measure I probably had going into that match was winning. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, that was, that was the takeover. That was, that was, a, I was being governed by my ego. I, I, I needed to win. We needed to back that result up. That's where I was at. And, and I didn't understand why we weren't. And I was, I was almost trying harder. And Freddie said, Dan, Dan, you're trying to make things happen. He said, come on, let, we just need to just let it happen. Just let it happen. You know, let's, you know, keep doing what we're doing. And, and, and getting the psychological side, which, I'm fascinated by now and, and studied a lot and, and, and speak to, to a lot of psychologists around. What basically he was doing there is he was just bringing me back to the present moment, you know, and just, yeah. just getting us to put our attention onto a certain, a certain process and then just trusted. And, and, that's, and that's something that it's a very difficult skill to have. But when you're able to do that, and and I think that's that's what you're saying. That's what I'm trying to say. This don't don't misinterpret the want to win bit, you know. But yeah. it's 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 trusting that by committing to certain actions along the way, the byproduct will be that you'll maybe win quite a bit over the years, you know, and not being too governed well, by that just in the moment win win at the end of the of the match. I also think, and this for young players is really important, and parents listening is, you know. A recent interview with Novak Djokovic, you know, one of the greatest ever, you know, saying that he, you know, you know, he still has to fight his inner storms. You know, every match he has to manage his mind. And he said, you know, the 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 thing that he's done over the years is learn how to calm himself and put his focus in the right direction when he's not executing that well. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, parents and players and young coaches, if you've not heard this before, it's so important to never have this uh, ideal that the struggle ever ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the never ending struggle and you just get better and better at manage that, managing that internal struggle. And I think so many young players 
you know, think that, oh, if I was top 100, if I was top 50, I wouldn't have this battle anymore. No, <laughs> no, this battle never, ever ends yeah. within yourself. Uh, and you just got to learn over time to manage it better and better. So you can stay more relaxed and trust that at some stage in a match, you will find it. Of course, yeah. if you don't, you lose. But yeah. you know, everybody loses a hell of a lot, apart from maybe the, the, the yeah. top three guys, yeah. uh, historically, top four when Andy was up there. Yeah, no, I've said it a couple of times, I'm sure, on the podcast, but I, I don't think it's it, it should get old to say it. But the way that we certainly look at in the model that we use mental toughness is to, to be in the present moment committing to a certain action. But the key bit is this next bit, no matter how you feel. Yes, yes, yes. No matter how you feel. And and I think we're as human beings, we're always searching to feel good and to okay, now I feel good. Now it's okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're almost like swimming trying to get to that island. Yeah. <laughs> but we get on that island and then another storm comes and knocks us back off the island. And just if I share a very quick story I use with players as well, is you've used Novak Djokovic, but the, the Roger Federer one that I use is you know, arguably the greatest male tennis player of all time, going for his 20th Grand Slam 2018 US Open. And he talks very openly about not sleeping the night before the match against Silic, just riddled with nerves, you know, really in, yeah. in a bad place with it. He then got on the court, found himself two sets to one up, one love up break. And he said he really started to imagine lifting the trophy for the 20th time, 20th Grand Slam. And he said, I honestly don't know what happened, but the next thing I knew, I was two sets all, love 40 down, and I heard my wife shouting at me. And it was such, yeah. a, it was such a blur. Yeah. And then it almost like his wife shouting at him, he managed to kind of kick out of it, and he, and he knuckled down and he held and obviously went on one, I think, 6-3 in the fifth set to, to win his 20th Grand Slam. But come on, Roger Federer is still feeling that at 38, 39 years old. Yeah, strong. yeah exactly. Yes. You, you yeah. know, it's it's it, it's just it is part of how we're made up and part of how how we need to not, I use the word tolerate. We need to tolerate. We need to tolerate how we're but also it. celebrate it because yeah. you know if 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 the the most talented people in the world who have a work ethic had no nerves, yep. uh, where would the space be for people who have maybe a little less ability and work incredibly hard yep. uh, to win? Yeah, it, yeah. It's the human emotion that allow upsets to happen. Uh, it's the human emotion that brings all the drama to sport yep. and to life, really. Yep. And so it should actually be celebrated rather than hated. You know, yeah, yeah. we all get into sport because... We, we love playing and love the competition. Yeah. And then as soon as we get a little bit good, yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, we don't want to lose anymore. Yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. You've forgotten why you started playing, which is to just enjoy the competition and, and, and fight for everything and, and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and, and getting good is what kind of often takes that enjoyment away from people. Yeah. Uh, and, and this idea that suddenly you should win more, you know, uh, you know, you'll win and lose. And, and that's, that's the sport, especially tennis. It's, uh, 
You know, I, you, if you look at like someone like Taylor Fritz, 29 in the world, on tour, he's lost more matches than he's won. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's very common, you know, uh, uh, for, for lots and lots of players, you know. Cam, Dan Evans, these guys have all lost more matches yeah, than yeah. one on tour. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul Henry Machu, we did a study on it at the Academy. We get the players to kind of study these things because one of my, again, one of my big things is know your sport. I think yes. you have to educate the sport, know your sport. Do you know, don't yes. get annoyed when you, when you miss a break point. Don't get annoyed and say, oh, I had so many chances. No, you didn't. You had one break point. And, and the yeah. tour average is 28% of breaks, break points won. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so you need four break points to have the right to say that, you you know, so yeah, don't yeah. get annoyed. Yeah. But Paul Henri Mathieu, I always find a fascinating one because he was in the top 100 for 12 years. Yeah. He, he, was, he was 12 in the world at his highest, you know, so incredible career. You know, granted, he had a lot of he had a lot of injuries. He won two hundred and fifty six matches on tour and lost two hundred and sixty five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, yeah, that guy. But his had... his bank account says it was worth it. Absolutely, absolutely. Just to move into uh, again on actually same topic really of Liam, I guess you know because I think Liam's a really nice topic to discuss because of the journey you've been on with him and we've looked at it a bit from his standpoint but you as a coach Dave you deserve a lot of credit and I would say the word I would give you is patience you know because to to, to have that patience to and you know Liam Liam I love Liam like a son as well he's a big part of you know always been a big part of the academy here and just he's, he's, he's a kid that we've got so much time for but he's a pain in the arse at times and he's and he's obviously you've gone through difficulties with him I guess my question to you is Dave Samuel age 30 35 would Dave Samuel have gone through that journey with Liam Brody or is that part of your evolution as a as a coach that has brought that more kind of mature patience to it? Uh, I actually said to Liam, you know, uh, a little while back, I said, you know, you're lucky in hitting me at a time in my career where I've evolved enough to, to have the kind of patience okay. that, that this has taken. Because I'll, I'll take you back to Martin Lee and Arvind, Yep. And uh, I finished with Arvin and Marty, both of them at the Australian Open, uh, for two different reasons. Uh, but I felt both of them were not, you know, listening and really attempting to put on court what I was asking them to do. Yep. And uh, I knew it was fear. But in those days, I was like, they'd gotten so far already by overcoming other fears, you know, and yeah. by listening, you know, and, and <clears throat> sticking to, 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 to the game plan and what, what we were trying to do. But, you know, obviously, Martin was already top 100. Uh, 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 Arvind was, I don't know, 128. You know, these guys were very good tennis players. And, you know... I was already looking to the next step for them. And I look back now and they weren't psychologically ready for that next step. Yeah. Um, and I told both of them, you know, 
call me when you're ready. Yeah. Uh, I, I said the same thing to, to Liam, but the difference was uh, uh, Liam had concluded our relationship the first time. Um, with those two guys, I concluded the relationship and said, call me when you're ready. And I think, I mean, I was tough on them and, and, and I think part of, part of their success was down to my incredible belief in them and, and confidence in what not only they could achieve, but I could achieve. Uh, but looking back, they probably needed a bit more time to psychologically come to terms with where they were and, and with what needed to be happened for the next step. Yeah. Um, but you only know what you know then, <laughs> you yeah, know? And so uh, they unfortunately fell foul of my, I suppose, a little bit of inexperience. I mean, I was already an experienced coach, but yeah. you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had that journey with Andrew Richardson and, and Miles McLagan already. And obviously Barry Cowan remained uh, and, and his journey went on as well, as you know, from, yeah. from his podcast. So, Yes, I mean, I think uh, patience is the right word. Yeah. And, and if I'd known them what I know now, I definitely would have handled those guys differently. Yeah. And, and who knows what, I mean, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I was what they needed then. And maybe I wouldn't have done as well with them. But I, I suspect I would have and it would have been slightly different. But yeah. hey, you know, you can't, I don't have regrets, because you can, you know, I would hate to think now that in five years time, I'm sitting there and thinking I'm not better than I was now. Yeah. You, ha you have to keep evolving and getting better. So, uh, and I think that's something that, that, you know, life and our sport doesn't do well enough is respect people's involvement. Yeah. Uh, so people get kind of pigeonholed as certain coaches or certain types of people and it takes a lot, you know, labels take a long time to shift. And really, you know, I, th I think that's, you know, even psychologically, if you say, you know, I'm a choker, that's a label. Yes. Rather I, than, rather than in that match, I choked. Yes. Yeah. You know, everybody chokes. So, but when you start labeling yourself as a choker or, you know, I've got no forehand, not, you know, in that match, you know, my forehand wasn't great. Yeah. You know, to, you, in sport, you really have to stay away from, from labels. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I know sort of my label as a coach is maybe quite hard, but also uh, uh, a mind coach. Yeah. But the reality is, <laughs> you know, tennis starts with, with how good your game is. Yeah. You know, I'd say I'm a very good technical coach. Yeah. And, and good tennis coach before yeah. the mind comes into play. Because if you don't play tennis very well, it doesn't matter how good your mind is, you're not going to win at a certain level. You know, mindset is everything at every level. But usually to jump levels, your game actually has to get better. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And no, if you, the right mindset is to understand that and be open to improving all the time your game yeah. and then understand that the, the, the mind follows the game. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, very good, Dave. No, I think the label one, actually, I remember when I was a young, when I, I'm still a relatively young coach, hopefully, um, but um, as, a, as a really young coach, I remember Hiltz kind of put my name forward for a certain role, um, you know, back in the UK. It was just before I set up the academy in Spain. And again, without going into names, the, the thing that came back, the feedback that came back, Dan Keenan, he's a Bisham boy, based nowhere. You know, and it was like, really? Like, the, the, honestly, somebody in, in this position of power, very, yeah. very high up, is going to look at how I was maybe perceived in a group at age 16 yeah. to, oh, to, to now decide whether I'm capable of doing something age 28, 29. You yeah, know, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's insane. You know, it's yeah. ab absolutely mind-blowing. Um, where, where I need to go, and actually, it's, yeah. I mean, I, like I said to you before the podcast, I have a loose structure, but what I love about this chat is it's, it's all just kind of, it's all what it is. It's all the tennis journey, and it's all jumping into loads of different bits, and there's so much I want to get out of you, Dave, because I think when we talk about those journeys, we talk about Arvind Palmer, we talk about Martin Lee, and, and then we then make that in a more general sense. I think most of us that have some experience are able to identify if someone's ready emotionally, we're able to identify if they have difficulties in their forehands, but we're also able to identify if they have difficulties mentally, whether it's difficulties accepting things, whether it's difficulties in big moments and they maybe choke a little bit, whether it's fear of failure, whatever it might be. But I guess the identification is one thing, <laughs> the, the how, <laughs> the how for how we help that and help that process is another thing. So can you, can you give us a little insight into, into how you have then gone on to help players with that once you've identified the areas that need to be progressed? Uh, yeah. Um, that, that brings me neatly into a nice little plug. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I've, I've actually developed a, 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 an online course called Mindset College. Yeah. And, you know, not only do I coach tennis players, but I actually uh, mentor, coach a number of different athletes from yeah. all different sports, you know, yeah. top level golfer, you know, to a top uh, track athlete, an uh, uh, international cricketer, and, and, and a, you know, a few business people as well. And uh, from all of this private consultation, and obviously my experience and, and done a lot of courses as well myself, uh, I've been able to distill, I'd say, the best ways yeah. to become mentally stronger. Yeah. and put it in an order that I know works. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm very excited about this program, which is, you know, launching now. Yeah. And I think it's the, the ideal sort of framework yeah. for anybody to work through. And the thing about mindset is you can work through this frame, framework five, six, seven times. Because as you get better, you understand these concepts at a different level. Yep. So, you know, I have a, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on here. Yeah. But, you know, same shit, different level. Yeah. You know, so um, that 
that is something that I think people think that they can just go through a course or, you know, work with a sports psychologist and then that's it. You know, I'm mentally strong now. No, as you go up the levels, you'll have to go through the same things, but you get a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of what is exactly required. So, uh, but getting back to your question exactly on the how, I always say this, when someone loses a tennis match, I never make a lot of notes. So if I, if it's an 11 year old girl, you know, I'll be watching that match and I'll literally pick two things game wise that will give her the biggest bang for her buck to improve. And one thing mentally. And it, you know, stats or something to an 11 year old to me mean nothing. You know, it's, you know, if they need to learn how to hit a drive volley, they need to learn how to hit a drive volley. That's going to give them the biggest bang for their buck at that time. Mm-hmm. So watch, and, and and that doesn't really change is when you watch players, it's it's important to identify, you can always find a hundred things to work on. But mm-hmm. I think the talent of a coach is to go for the one or two things that are going to give them the biggest bang for their buck. So for instance, you know, you mentioned, uh, Martin Lee, when, when, when I started with Marty, it was clear to me that he had huge potential on his forehand side, but he slapped the ball a lot and hit it often very flat, hundred miles an hour. If it went in unplayable, especially the into out forehand yeah. and just worked all, so much to give him shape and, and, and consistency on that side, which you know, really helped. And then the other thing was to take the ball really, really early, especially second serves, because he was so quick. So he could follow a, a second serve return to net and kind of be there before the guy had a chance to blink. And, you know, that those two things alone pretty much took him to top 100. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he had a lot of other skills and a fantastic uh, competitor when he's got his teeth into matches and uh, incredible mover. So he had a lot of attributes, but those two things to me were the things that, that were able to uh, open the court for him by staying in the forehand and, and then being able to take the ball, especially early off the backhand. And, you know, I remember having the discussion with Marty, you know, his forehand obviously, you know, got to a place where he was top 100. And then I said, right, now the forehand needs to get better for you to go higher. And he said, what do you mean? You know, you said the forehand's good now. I said, yeah, it is, but it needs to be better to be top 50, yeah. you know? So you've got to do things at the time that they, that they arise, but it's really important to pick the two things I think that can give you the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah. And once those things are in place, you can then look for, for the next step. That doesn't mean you don't work on other things as well, but yeah. the real focus of yeah. their mindset and your mindset is to put, these you know couple of things right uh and they can that that can take you a a long way so um you know and i I think understanding what it is that a player needs to do to get better is is the first step and then mentally of course you can pick you know with a young kid the one thing you know that Maybe, you know, you talked about Roger Federer going to the future, lifting the trophy and that. Well, 
kids do that all the time. Yeah. But I always say this, you know, if you're in the future, if your mind's in the future or your mind's in the past, who's there playing for you? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. You know, you know, you have to be there to play because if you're in the future or the past, there's no one there playing for you. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. You come back to the present and suddenly, you know, instead of being three, one up, you're five, three down. And, and you don't know what's happened to those games because you were in the future and the past yeah. the whole time. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. But. No, no, it does. And, and on that point as well, Dave, that obviously the, if we're in the future, we tend to have nerves and anxieties because we're trying to control something that's potentially out of our control. You know, there's our control, the controllables, you know, and if we're, if we're in the past, we tend to be carrying frustration and anger. Whereas, yeah. whereas, whereas tennis is played in the present, you know, that's where, that's I, where the match is happening. I also think that being in the future disrespects the narrow margins. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're up a break in the third set, 4-1, uh, and you're lifting the trophy in your head, you're disrespecting how close that match actually is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, a, that's an awareness and that's a word that players, sometimes it jolts them into reality, is that you need to respect the sport yeah. and you need to respect how close the margins are. Yeah. And if you do that, it's a lot harder to become complacent and think that, yeah. you know, you're, you're over the line already. Yeah. And of course, what happens if you think you're over the line and the margins are narrow and you lose a few points, that's when the panic hits. Yeah. Uh, and that's when, you know, people, people get into trouble. Uh, but the same thing is if you fall one down, don't cave in because again, you're not respecting the margins in tennis are so small yeah. that, you know, it doesn't take a lot to be back in that match. No, you're never, you're never really more than 10, 12 minutes out of a tennis match. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, you know, in reality, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. I think you might have been there, but at Tara Moore in Sunderland, Sunderland last year, I've seen, I see you in so many different tournaments, whether you were yeah. in that one or not, I don't know. But Tara, I was watching and she was, she was six love, five love, 40, 15 down. <laughs> yes, yes. That was in California somewhere, wasn't it? No, it was in Sunderland. Oh, that's in, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, in, right. it was in yeah. Sunderland. And literally 12, 15 minutes later, she's five all in that set and probably yeah. now the favourite to win the match. Yes. You yeah, know, yes. and it's like, if that's the case, and it goes back to this thing, and during, I know the UK have gone into another lockdown. When we were in the lockdown previously in Spain, we, we developed some online courses. And the ones that we did with our players that we still now have now, we had two courses just called Knowing Your Sport. And it was just like going into all of those details. And, and again, I think if you have that overarching perspective of what your sport is, in football, if me and you are on the team and we're playing Barcelona and we're 7-0 down at half time, it's over. It's, it's you know, ball game. If it's, you know, the certain sports, if you're swimming yeah. and you're, you're a length away from the other person, you know, it's pretty, you know, what golf, if you're 12 shots away, it's, there's too many, there's too big of a margin. But there isn't really a margin in tennis where the match is over, you know, and, no. and, and that's on both sides because yeah. it's, it's either the one losing who's thinking of the future of, oh, I've lost now. Yeah. Or, it's, or it's the one that's ahead that exactly what you're saying, not respecting yeah. the situation, you know, because yeah. we see it. We saw it at US Open, 
Milanovic yeah. setting five one up. We saw Sitsi pass yeah. five what five one five love up in the in the fifth or whatever yeah. it was, you know. So it it's it's happening to the very best in the business. One one thing I remember almost like my first experience with you, I was training at Bolton and you came in and you spoke to us all about the worst emotion being regret, you know, and you yeah. did, a, did a big talk with us. It, re- it really stuck with me. But one thing with you as a character that has, and even talking to you t- t- today, you command, you command people, you, you know, you have a, you have a really, you have a bit of an aura about you and in, in, in how you do that. Is that, is that something that you would put, put down to your South African roots, your upbringing, where, where is, is all of this come from? And I guess that leads us into a little bit, give us a little bit about your story growing up in, 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 in terms of how this, this whole tennis thing, passion burns inside you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, was, I, I grew up in South Africa. Um, my parents were uh, very different very, very different. Uh, there were four natural children. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, the, the, the fourth and there was five years difference between my three older sisters and myself. Okay. And my, my mother adopted a, a brother for me uh, because she felt that I'd be around uh, too many females and needed some nice. male bonding around me. Uh, and, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, she, she said, you know, uh, I felt that if, uh, if you didn't have a brother around you, uh, you'd, you'd become too effeminate. <laughs> uh, my brother, uh, Jonathan, fantastic guy uh, that they adopted, uh, actually is, is uh, gay. <laughs> so that was quite <laughs> ironic. Um, <laughs> uh just a a magical guy uh but then my mother got very friendly with the social worker and went on to adopt uh uh five more children oh wow so came from then a family of 10 uh which was really really interesting um the the dynamics in the family were you know with that many kids and that busy a household you you had to very quickly learn how to stand up for yourself yeah. <laughs> to find a way to be heard you became independent very very quickly because you know my mother was so busy especially with the younger ones and stuff yeah. like that i mean you know the the world has changed but it was a bit like the wild west in south africa in those days i mean i started riding a a, a scooter at 12 years old and taking myself to tennis lessons and so my mother loved tennis and was actually, you know, again, a very good athlete. She played uh, netball for South Africa and then found tennis when she was 28. She had played quite a lot of badminton and was, uh, you know, county standard equivalent. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, played tennis. And by the time she was 34, she was top 10 in South Africa. And my mother was one of those people that just was a, a true competitor. Yeah. I mean, she just did not know when to lie down. Talk about play in the present, just fight for everything. Yeah. That's all she did. She, and she ran well and, and dinked and, and her whole style was obviously unorthodox because it had no coaching, but would just fight to the bitter end. You know, I always said, you know, horses, if you run them, they'll run till they drop dead. Yeah. 
I always felt that my mom would actually run till she dropped dead. Yeah, yeah. She wouldn't know when to stop. Um, so she had a tremendous competitive spirit. Uh, my older sisters played tennis. I started tennis, but because she was so involved with their tennis and my one of my older sisters, Gwen, actually was a top 100 pro and, uh, and uh, you know, was a, a very good tennis player. Um, had she had the right coaching, I think she would have done a, a hell of a lot better. Uh, but in those days, it, you know, and my parents couldn't afford it as well. So my tennis was kind of left on its own. I played a lot of cricket. I was a very good cricketer. And another ironic thing, I remember I was, I was 15 years old and, you know, probably equally a good, a good at tennis as I was at cricket. We had to play rugby. I wasn't bad at rugby either, but I hated the sport because, uh, you know, I was a, a forward and, and because of my size, just in the scrum the whole time. In those days, rugby was very attritional. And, you know, I remember going a whole game and not touching the ball once with my hands, just with my feet, you know, in, in the scrums. Yeah. So that, that didn't appeal to me as a sport, but there was a compulsory, so you had to play it. And, and I, my mom and, and dad sat down with me and said, look, you know, if you play cricket to make a living, you'll have to go and play county cricket in England. And you don't want to live in that shit country. <laughs> Believe me, the weather's terrible. You know, it's, it, you just do not want to live there. Uh, but if you if you play tennis, you can get a scholarship to America, and you know you you know you can go live in America, which is far better. Um, so that definitely had an influence on my on my thinking. So I, I chose tennis, and I was always a, a, a top uh, ten junior in South Africa, and was probably yeah. number five when I got recruited. By Kevin Curran to Texas. Uh, and from Texas, I went on to North Texas because two of my best friends, uh, South Africans, were recruited to North Texas and the coach there was trying to build a, yeah. a really good team. And I, I have to say, I didn't enjoy the coach at Texas at all. Uh, no, okay. uh, so, so I transferred there and had two great years there. Um, then that, the, the program fell apart in terms of uh, the money ran out at that university. They were trying to get into the Southwest Conference and overspend. So uh, we, we ended up getting a volleyball coach for my last year. <laughs> uh, but I, I stuck it out to get my degree. Yeah. For my tennis, it was actually bad because the summer before my senior year, I actually started doing quite well, uh, got my world ranking in singles and, and doubles and, and had some momentum. Yep. And I wasn't mature enough in that last year of college to understand that I was there just to get my degree and to work hard purely for myself. I got very down about how bad the situation was right. and the fact that you know uh, the team had, you know, a lot of players actually left the college they got a free red shirt to go somewhere else because the 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 the, the whole uh, uh, team had fallen apart, and I didn't want to do that because I wanted to graduate and go and play. Yeah. So practice and everything was poor that year. So I started my pro career on the back foot. I wasn't playing very well when I started, yeah. um, and and very quickly I realized the only way I could make a living was to. Uh, to play in Europe. Yeah. And that really toughened me up because I played a lot in, in Holland and Belgium. 
uh, some in France and Germany, money tournaments, just to get money together yeah. to then go play satellites, which yeah. were five weeks in those times. Yeah. And, and, you know, would save up money, go play satellites, blow the money, come back and then what <laughs> make an money again. Yeah. And then I, I managed to get a contract with the Metzelas club to play for the, the, the team, the first team there. And, and that was my lifeline because I had a, a, a steady income yeah. from that basically survived like that, but it also led me into my coaching. And, and, and at some point, uh, the, the Metzelas offered me a job to coach the first three teams and play. Right. I think that was 1986. Um, so I did that and the team was very successful. It worked really, really well. So the following day, they say, come back. Can you stay longer in the summer? We'll let you play uh, uh, money tournaments as well, but coach the first three teams and the junior, the best juniors. So I did that yeah. and, and I remember it was the end of that second summer where what I would do after the first summer, I went and used a lot of the money to go play satellites around the world uh, is I had for me quite a, a bit of money and, and I sat down with my wife and I said, you know, this is crazy. I'm a professional tennis player, which means you play for money. Yeah. The reality is I, I no longer had a belief that I was going to make, you know, top 200, top hundred. And really in those days, if you didn't make top hundred, you couldn't make a living. Yeah. Uh, and, and there weren't many challenges in those days. It was all satellites. I mean, I remember Derek Tarr made top hundred and just purely on satellites, right, yeah. you know, uh, and there were only, I think about 600 ranked players at the time. Yeah. So uh, I said, well, this is crazy. What I'm going to do is, carry on playing and 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 britain started with the mortgage corporation league i don't know if you remember that which is like our, our form of team tennis yeah. and and match point in manchester the the yeah. club they asked me to play for them right. so i okay. captained that captain that team which was a lot of fun so uh uh i then just got asked to work with some juniors there the dutch club asked me to go full-time as a coach and had they gotten indoor courts i would have settled in holland but uh, planning permission got turned down and I got offered the head coach job at match point okay. and decided to take that, but I didn't stop playing. I mean, I carried on playing Volkswagen ratings. Remember Perno yeah, and, yeah. and Perno and Volkswagen ratings. And, yeah. and, uh, and I think that sort of evolved into British tour. So I played on till, you know, my mid thirties, I'd say, okay, wow. uh, as well as, as well as coaching uh, and started a full-time, yeah. squad at match point players did well nick baglin if you remember yeah. rightly uh, oh. michael ingham you know before him so Venky, Venky, yeah well Venky was coached by the late roger cowell sadly uh but he was part of my squad uh so uh, it was a joint effort there so and mark airy i have to mention mark. yes yeah absolutely mark airy uh, yeah. i mean there were a lot of players and then gary henderson joined that as well yeah. and and tom spinks yeah. Uh, so, you know, and and I, I became more, uh, you know, I started doing more and more trips for the LTA. And eventually Billy Knight actually asked me to come on as a national coach and travel okay. with players, uh, which is which is how I got involved uh, fully with with the LTA. Okay. But but going back to my childhood, one of the things uh, 
my, my parents had an attitude of, you know, uh, and my dad was very strong on this, that rules are man-made, uh, yeah. but principles uh, are, are basically forever. And, and okay. I suppose a moral code or whatever, you, you need to have principles. But rules, don't just listen to rules because they're man-made and doesn't mean they're right. So, you know, challenge rules. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that really got ingrained in me. And, and the other thing is, you know, it, it, it's interesting. My mother and father would say, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. Yeah. Um, yet I'm not sure they always totally believed that. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it was something that they liked to say and everything like that. I think, I think my dad believed it and was a real maverick. And, and you know, that's a story in itself. Uh, you know, he, he never worked for anybody. Very, very bright guy. Uh, you know, could live on playing cards if he wanted to, you know, yeah. uh, he had a photographic memory, uh, a very, very uh, colorful life, very charismatic guy. Yeah. So I think I probably inherited some of that from him. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I've always been someone who, who doesn't just listen to rules and think, you know, that's it, I will, I'll look behind it and, and, and challenge rules. Yeah. So, you know, coming back to the aura that you spoke about, um, as a young coach, I very quickly realized that my size was an advantage, yeah. that I could command uh, presence uh, yeah. with my size. And I definitely, you know, consciously used that. But it also led me to understand one thing that, that I learned later in life, that every strength is a weakness and every weakness is a strength. Okay, yeah. You know, in certain situations, intimidating people, you know, and it's not, it's not, I, I would hope, I maybe when I was younger was a little bit like that, but maybe too aggressive, but, but being able to command a presence in that in certain situations, isn't that helpful. You know, if you're yeah. trying to win friends and influence people, yeah. a softer approach is, is often uh, better. I do know this, that many a player has said this to me. And many a person has said this to me. Oh, wow. We never knew you were like this. You know, yeah. we, we were scared of you. And, yeah. uh, and once they get to know me, then they realize that it's a little deeper and it's, it's not, it's not at all scary. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, that's a, it's a great story, Dave. And, and, and you've got hopefully a, a lot more story to tell, you know, over the, over the next few years, but what's, what motivates you? What's your why? What's your real purpose? What's because again, you seem highly driven to me. You know, like I, I, we don't get inside everyone, but it feels as if you're 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 on this journey. You've been on it. You're not showing any signs of wanting to slow down. You know, you seem to be absolutely there. So, what's the driving force behind that? Uh, the original driving force is is I wanted to help players avoid so many of the pitfalls and I suppose traumas that yeah. I went through as a player, yeah. because when you're trying to be the best that you can be and you don't have the knowledge. And even once I started to have the knowledge, I didn't have anybody to help me put it together. You yeah. go down so many rabbit holes that are, are wrong. Yeah. And whilst people need to learn lessons for themselves, 
you also have to, if you're going to be a good tennis player, you have to hack some of those lessons. Yeah. You, you can't learn everything the hard way. Yeah, yeah. And so I set out coaching to really help players uh, avoid the, a lot of the pit, pitfalls and to try to hack their journey for them. Uh, as I've gotten older and evolved and, and obviously have you know, vast amounts of, of, of extra knowledge, um, I've started to realize how much impact I have in people. It was actually my 50th birthday where it really hit me hard is uh, 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 Barry Cowan and the guys organized a surprise birthday party for me in London. And all of these ex-players showed up. Um, I remember that. I do remember that. Wimbledon, wasn't yeah. it? Yes, yes. Hmm. And they all said a few words. And what really hit me hard was not one of them mentioned the tennis. Yeah, yeah. And it was all about, you know, basically how I, I'd helped them as people. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's when it struck me that, you know, it would be good if I can, you know, really start to get the message out, which is what prompted me to write Locker Room Power. Yes. Uh, at, the stuff was in my head already, but that yep. kind of was a catalyst to like, come on, get this down on paper. Yeah. And having written Locker Room Power, which, you know, I think turned out pretty well, um, uh, I've sort of carried on in that journey. And, and that's led me to, you know, creating Mindset College, because now I believe that, that I have something to say that, you know, the other thing is, nothing is, is, is new. I mean, you've had some great people, Aristotle, you know, uh, Seneca, you know, um, uh, great philosopher. I mean, you know, uh, so much of what's been said has been said, but everybody frames things slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And I think I do have a talent of framing things in a simple way for people to, to understand. Yeah. And, and therefore, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, when they say to sell something, you need to touch somebody seven times, maybe mm -hmm. in certain Me mental skills people have to hit it hear it in seven different ways from seven different people in order for it to resonate with them yeah. and 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 i suppose i just you know feel like i'd like to add my voice to to one of those touches yeah yeah very good and and for those listening if you haven't read locker room power i strongly advise that you do you know and and dave i i read it a few years ago and, and my my feedback is is just how practical it was and, and you know and i think you might have even said that in the foreword that you know you're not a you don't have a doctor you know psychology but what you do have is years of experience that you can then bring that you can bring through that, that just is very relatable on the tennis side you know and yes. I think, you know and i think certainly different stories i remember i remember sam murray's story talking yeah. about like you've basically really pushing her to play uncomfortable to be able yes. to get over the to get over the edge with her her trying to develop a certain game style and you know what there's there's what I loved about it and, and again urging coaches and players and parents to 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 read it is is the practicality of it you know and I think on the psychological side and it's again a big belief of mine 
in, in how we work the psychology at the, at the academy, I'm not a one for, right, go off and speak to the psychologist and, you know, your, your head's gone. It's a, it, we have to be the psychologists, you know, and it's where, where the day-to-day people, where the ones that are dealing with the practicalities of, of whatever it is, whether it's family relationships, whether it's, you know, and if I go back actually to Liam Brody, it was actually, it was in that 18-month period that you work, weren't working with Liam and he actually came out to, to Sota Grande because I think Sota Grande is a bit of a safe place for him that just he's, he's had over the years to just go yeah. to a nice play. And, and I remember we sat and we had a coffee and he'd, he, we'd done a couple of weeks and he, not that he was looking for me to be his coach, he just was a safe place for him to come and he was working through some things obviously well-documented with his father. And when he sat and spoke to me and I said to him, you need you need Dave. It was obvious the way that he was talking. He, he needed that. He needed a he needed a father figure. He needed someone who was stronger. He basically described to me <laughs> you <laughs> without saying your name. Yeah. You know, and it, and it was it, it was it was really um, you know it just really stood out stood out for me really. Well, well, thanks for that. I, I mean, I appreciate it, and and it's you know touch wood. It's it, it's working pretty well right now. Uh, I think also, you know, going back to your last question, uh, Bath has been a very interesting experience for me because what I was able to do at Bath was the culmination of, of a journey. So I ran the, 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 the program at Matchpoint and I had good intentions, but no clue how to do it. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of being a leader and, and yeah. getting the right culture and environment there. Uh, I then obviously ran the National Academy at Bolton and then Leeds for, for the LTA. And I was better in those. Uh, but Leeds was a different animal because I brought on my own people, yeah. which was Jez Green, obviously, on the physical. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jez, I, you know, obviously, I coached Jez, actually. And, yeah. uh, and he came back and said, I want to you know, be a trainer. And I said, great. And he was, you know, a huge help. Uh, uh, but we, we grew together. I mean, we yeah. traveled together for 11 years. And, and, and he did an amazing job and learned his trade incredibly well to go on to be, you know, probably, if not the best trainer in the world for tennis. Um, but he was part of that team. Uh, Anthony Hampson, who I'd coached, was part of that team and a, and a good coach. And Kate Warren-Holland, who I'd coached. And I think in some ways that was too comfortable okay. because it was so much my team and I wasn't yet at a place to, to realize that bringing in maybe somebody who could challenge us in a different way would have been incredibly helpful. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, and then uh, we, I started the Monte Carlo Academy with Jez which was a fantastic experience. And I still believe it's probably the best way to produce players, which is yeah. a, a, a touring academy that has to have a training base. Mm -hmm. uh, and although Monte Carlo uh, Country Club was an amazing training base, it also meant that players were, were away from home when they were training, yeah. which was you know very difficult. And the accommodation there was because obviously it's Monte Carlo, they had to stay out in, in airs, which was, you know, not, <laughs> yeah. not that great 
uh, which is the only thing that, you know, although we had you a could good have sponsor. A cheaper, you could have picked a cheaper place than Monte Carlo, Dave. <laughs> sure, but, uh, but our sponsor was from there. So, oh, okay, uh, okay, okay. yeah, so, you know, the whole thing was tied up in the, yeah. uh, uh, you know, he had business in Monte Carlo and, and Dubai. Uh, but of course, the 2008 crash came and uh, that hurt him badly financially yeah. and, and he had to pull the plug. So, uh, and that's when I got in talks with Bath, but I went into Bath uh, with a clear idea of what leadership was. And, and you know, over 10 years, I'm very proud of what's happened there. Yeah. And, and of course, it was only possible because Barry Scholar, the director of tennis there, yeah. is so open-minded and so keen to to get the environment right. And he brought me in for a specific purpose to get the tennis right. Yeah. And, and we bounce off each other incredibly well. Yeah. And the team there has developed, uh, you know, to what I wanted was a team of leaders, people who yeah, yeah. literally can manage themselves. And, and, and it, it, it is really a, a, a fantastic environment that uh, is, is brilliant for kids because it's very, a very caring and, and safe place and i think you know your academy is 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 of a similar vein where yeah. you know there's a lot of care for for them as people as well and yeah. i know a lot of people and a lot of academies will say that but it you know like anything in life it it's not as easy in practice to put no. together as 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 just words yeah and how have you creative we hear the word culture a lot culture 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 how how have you created or gone about trying to create the the culture that you that you want and believe is then gonna cultivate excellence cultivate care nurturing you know all of those things that that you value um i think the first thing was uh, i came in and and observed and then I had one-to-one -one meetings with every with every coach, yeah. and and I, I know when I arrived, they were they thought I was going to just come in and steal the best players and yeah and and work in my silo. And I assured them that I wasn't, but I said, "You got nothing to trust me by. You just you're just going to have to trust me." Yeah. But then I also asked them some good questions, like what they wanted for their coaching careers as people, yeah. whether it was inside Bath or outside. And, and I asked them, you know, if you were in my position, what's the one thing that you would change, you know, uh, you know, either do more of stop doing or, 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 or do that, that yeah. we're not doing. And there were some sensible suggestions and those I went back to Barry and said, we have to implement these immediately. Yeah which gave the coaches a huge, uh, uh, big boost in trust that I was listening. Yep. And those that I couldn't fulfill because of whatever reason I explained to them why it yep. either just didn't fit my philosophy, uh, of, of, and the vision and, and, or, it just wasn't financially practical or whatever, yeah. but I explained to them why we weren't implementing. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the playing goes, I just implemented one rule, which is 
for me, still the finest discipline rule there is, which is if a player is not trying or, or not there for whatever reason or misbehaving, you just send them off the court for a minimum of five minutes. Yep. But they have to choose when they come back, but they can't yep. come back in less than five minutes. Yeah, yeah. But if they want to leave for the day, go. Yeah. If they come back in 15 minutes, and I said to the coaches, you just reintegrate them with no discussion about their behavior or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. And and what happens then is is players return to the it's their choice to return. Yeah, They're basically yeah. saying, okay, I'm ready to 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 work now again. And yeah. it's very rare that you ever have to send yeah. a player off again in the same session. Yeah, yeah. But I remember we had a, a, a young girl who really didn't want to play tennis. <laughs> and honestly, she got sent off most days and never came back. <laughs> Next day, come, come back and, you know, after 10, 15 minutes, not trying at all, got sent off. And, I, and, and it suited her yeah, and yeah. suited the coach because you had a, a problem out your way. Yeah. Until she decided she wanted a scholarship to America. Yeah, yeah. And then she came back and tried and 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 you know was was brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I do feel for the college she went to because <laughs> as soon as she secured the scholarship, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> we didn't see her much again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but uh, you know, so so that created an environment and what I went and I floor walked a lot in those days um, and, and, and spent a lot of time with the coaches on court, uh, imp helping them implement this. Yeah. So the level of intensity on at all the different levels uh, increased and the coaches got a much better feel to the, to the point now that very rarely at Bath it happens that you have to send a player off court. So, yeah. uh, and, and then, you know, uh, twice a year, we have a, 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 an away day where we look for the next step for the academy. Yeah. And also once a month, we have one day, which is just purely a planning day yeah. and, and, and a day for the coaches just to have no pressure to go on court. The physical trainers are part of it. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the support staff, which we're lucky to have the physios and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the whole day is just spent discussing how to take the program forward. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of pushback against that. To, so I just said, well, we're going to do one. Yeah. Now, I think that, you know, the coach like, how the hell did we manage without this one day? Pushback from the staff or pushback from the players and parents? Uh, more from the staff. Okay. Okay. Uh, surprisingly little from the players and parents. Okay. Uh because also I said, you know, it's good for the kids to just get on with it on their own for one day. Just go yeah, play yeah. matches, do whatever they want. You know, they still get their court time. They just got yeah. to look after themselves. Yeah, uh, so, uh, and and now that's, you know, entrenched in, 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 in the whole ethos. Yeah. And I think that day does more than anything because everybody gets so busy, it's hard to take yeah. stock. It is. And that yeah. one day a month really, really helps a hell of a lot. Yeah. So uh, in a nutshell, that's... I'm going to steal that. 
I'm going to say because we do we yeah. we definitely we 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 fight for time. We really you you do. I think in a, yeah. in an academy where you're jumping and you've got so much happening and you're trying your best to look after every player and there's always somebody on the court. There's always someone in the it, gym. So. Yeah, it's it's a great release that that the players know and the yeah. coaches know. There's a day your mind is yeah. free. Uh, you yeah. don't have any pressure of going on court. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, made a huge difference. I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it. There's a couple yeah, of points. Be I my want, guest. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of things I want to pick up. One, um, we're on the same page completely on this kind of effort thing. I think I, I certainly and you know, and again, just I want to pick up on that because I, I see it with coaches everywhere that they end up spending more time with the player that's not giving their best effort, and actually, probably that player's then. Uh, relates getting more attention with not giving their best effort, you know. So we have a very, we have a three strike one. So we we'll have. So if you're on my court, Dave, and I don't believe you're giving the best effort, and what we do at the academy is we get the players to set their their values and you know hold them accountable to that. So then I would just say, hey, Dave, you know the you know the environment that you guys have decided you want. Your effort isn't good enough for that environment right now. You've got you've got a minute to turn it around. No more. Not really any big eye contact. Off you go. If it continues exactly the same, the five minutes, you know, five minutes minimum off the court, and 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 I think that empowerment. And we had the same actually a few years ago. The kind of the domino effect of rackets being thrown and, yeah, and yeah. things like that, and 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 just very simple. We brought in a in in something um, five years ago and reframed it and said. And the first thing I'll say to anyone, so if Liam came and practiced for the week, so Liam did a few press-ups actually when he was at the academy. It's like, hey, just so you know, you can throw your racket as much as you want at this tennis academy. You just have to pay 20 press-ups for everyone. Do you know what I mean? It's absolutely yeah, fine. Yeah. Do, do it as much as you yeah. want. You know, it's no, it's no problem. Yeah. Just, you know, you just have to pay your, you just have to pay your bill on it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and it's amazing when you get the odd dickhead that's still just like who's still chucking it every now and then and, and, and they've got quite big chests now. But it's amazing sometimes yeah. how just those simple things that yeah. just reframe and just take it a little bit different. My next question, Dave. I, I want to tell you a very oh, sorry, quick story go on, on yeah, that. Go, go. Tom Spinks was a dinger. Yeah. Just yeah. ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. So he's dingy, dingy, dingy. And I I just ran out, grabbed his rack, and I said, <laughs> if you're gonna ding your freaking racket. <laughs> do it properly yeah and i smashed his racket against the pole yeah i mean i threw it as hard as i could yeah. you know and i said now that's throwing a racket so if you're gonna do it do it properly yeah <laughs> i kind of you know uh, <laughs> uh, he'll never forget that <laughs> yeah absolutely impact it's called yeah. Im impact coaching dude. impact yeah. coaching um what makes a good coach um timing You, I mean, you, you have to understand the sport. Don't get me wrong. I mean, so you, you, you need to know what you're doing on a tennis court and, and how, you know, how to teach. But, but timing, once you, you've got that under your belt, timing is everything. You've got to feel when a player is ready to listen and when they're not. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to feel when a drill's not going well to switch it. You have to yeah. feel when a when the players are bored or, or, or tired or whatever, and make it more fun. Yeah. Uh, the timing of when you do things is just so so important. 
and the timing of when you say things is so important. And I think again, as you get older and, and, and wiser at this, you definitely say less. Yeah. Though you can have some very in-depth conversations at the right moment, yeah. but they don't tend to happen on a tennis court or they'll happen at the end of the session, just sitting on the bench. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you suddenly know the players open yeah. and then you dive in. Yeah. But if you start and you see the players close, I remember it was only just a couple of weeks ago uh, with Liam in in, uh, in Spain. We were having dinner and I start on something and I could see, he was like, I said, you're not into this right now, are you? He went, nah. He said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's talk about girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, whatever he wanted to talk about, but, you know, yeah. uh, but so you, you just got to read the signals and, and, and uh, you know, there's no point talking when a player's not open. Yeah, very good. Very good advice. And British tennis. Yes. That's, that's the question. Uh, well, you know, for, for probably 20 years, I've been banging the same drum. The LTA, in my opinion, should just be a facilitator. I think uh, everything should be on a bonus scheme. Uh, yeah. I don't like opinion in tennis. Uh, you know, nobody knows who's going to be. I mean, look, there's always the obvious, a phenom or somebody who literally can't play. But the gray area is so, yeah, so yeah. wide yeah. to to consistently have a system in place where you think you can pick the, the, the best kids and put lots of resource behind them uh, is, is very narrow. Yeah. And also I think it breeds an entitlement attitude, whether you like it or not, you know, you, you've spoken about the Rover scheme yeah. and how the other players, and that's the other thing when you get everything, how the other players resent it. Yeah. They're kids, you know, yeah. How can you tell kids not to resent the fact that yeah. somebody is getting a lot more than, than, yeah. than they are, especially if, the again, the margins are small? Yeah. So if you have everything on a bonus scheme, it would also uh, cause the sport to grow up. So you run an academy. I, yeah. I help run an academy. You know, we had a bonus scheme, which, uh, you know, I'd given to Roger Draper. I give, gave to Downey. I've given to every CEO. Uh, I gave to 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 Leon, um, and it's it means that players can go out and earn money. Yep. And for under 18s, we should have bonuses for tournaments. You know, if they win nationals, I don't know, 10, 20 grand. It, it, it doesn't matter the sums, uh, and over time, the the, the federation would learn yeah. where the best bonuses give you the most bang for your buck. Yeah. And the money that goes to kids does not go to the kid. It goes to the academy, the coach, uh, uh, who are behind that kid. Yeah. Now let's say kids at your academy for six months and then moves to our academy and you've got end of year bonuses for, for, for ITF rankings. Uh, whatever that end of year bonus is, you get six, you know, 50%, we get 50% because you did the first six months of the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and that way, you know, the best academies would make the most money from the bonuses. Yeah. And, you know, people can vote with their feet then. And mm. if, you know, there's always the argument that, oh, well, you know, if, if an if a independent coach gets 20 grand because their kid won the nationals and they buy a new car, hey, you know, parents aren't stupid. Yeah. If, if he's not investing the same time or whatever into the kid yeah. uh, and the parent gets unhappy, guess what? They'll leave oh, and, 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 and word will spread and, and that, hey, if you go to that coach and you do well, he, he'll just go on a nice holiday with the money and you won't see any of it. What will happen to that business? There'll be a free <laughs> market that, that literally rewards uh, people who are producing. Yeah. And, and, and players, you know, uh, with a bonus scheme um, who are on futures, you know, the bonus scheme kept players in the game, Yeah. you know, and I think we should have ranking bonuses as well. And you only pay them once, Yeah. But, you know, if a player gets to top 200, you know, give them a hundred grand, yeah. you know, and say, okay, because that gives them the opportunity to, to get the coach that they want or do whatever yeah. they want. And if they want to buy, you know, a sports car with it, yeah. well, and their ranking goes backwards, hey, that's that's life. Yes. Uh, as long as they're then not built. I think the problem is what's happened in the past is players have got to that level. They've then got entitled and got on their high horse and they've received this level of funding. They've then dropped, but then they've been bailed out to, to get back yeah, up. Yeah, but, so it, but the thing is, because these bonuses are only paid once, yeah. uh, you, you wouldn't be bailing them out. There's no, yeah. and again, there's no opinion to it. So every player and every coach knows exactly what the targets are. Yeah, It's an open playing field. Uh, if you're good, you survive. If you're not, you don't, or you, you, you play at a different level, you yeah. know, and, and, and your coach coaches at a different level. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you do that, and then, of course, create the competitive opportunities, you know, look at yeah. Italian tennis. Yeah. They've got so many tournaments and, oh, wow. You know, India, a lot of good Indian players now because they've got actually a very good competitive schedule. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so if you've got a lot of tournaments, so players don't have to travel far, you have bonuses. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that facilitates tennis. And yeah. for me... Uh, it's you have a commissioner for the sport, which is the LTA, yeah. who who will over the years get so experienced at where to put the bonuses to get the best out of players and coaches. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, yeah. of course, that that means a whole philosophy change, and and incredibly brave to do something like that. I mean, we had the bonus scheme, which was a step in the right direction. Yeah. And a shame. I think they still have some kind of bonus yeah. scheme, but it's it's yeah. it's not what it was. Yeah. Well, my issue is, and I, and, I, and again, I've had a anyone that's listening to these podcasts. I'm sorry, I've I'm going over all ground, but yeah. obviously we've had Leon, we've had Simon Jones, you've had people that have been quite heavily involved over the last few years in that. And as good as those guys were, and they spoke, and you know, I they did a great job. I still came away with this kind of. It's just the way it is. It's the way it needs to be. It's the way it's the way it needs to be. We we need to we need to be putting money into that and we need to be doing this and we need to basically monopolize things. And 
No, you don't. It, it doesn't. It, it get get your mind out of that. Go to all the other countries in the world, so many other countries in the world. And I see it in Spain. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need mm-hmm. to be. People, mm-hmm. the cream will rise to the top. You know, there's there's people out there that have that have, will take full accountability, will take full responsibility, and they will find ways. Well, can you imagine if 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 the bonus was you know you get a player to the you know quarterfinals of Wimbledon as a coach, and there's you know a two hundred and fifty grand bonus there for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's some motivation. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the, you know, it, it's 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 a uh, it's human nature that if you put targets there, people will reach them. Yeah. And and you know, once you have a a system that selects, you're now relying on total personal motivation for players to not get entitled and unfortunately rather than having players learn how to stretch themselves to reach targets and therefore learn to appreciate the hard work and everything to get there there's a danger of players that have that potential to do that get entitled and you actually hurt them by giving them, you know, rather than, you know, helping them evolve as people. Because, you know, a player who's 300 in the world doesn't truly understand what top 100 means. That as a person, I remember actually having this conversation with Marty, is, is saying, you know, you can't see yourself at 50 in the world. But... And, and the pressure that would come with that really scares you. But don't forget, if you get to 50 in the world, you won't be the same person you are now. You'll yeah. be able to handle that pressure because you will have evolved into a person yeah. who can handle that pressure. Yeah. You know, so people have to evolve. And when you get selected and just get things, it's it stifles your involvement as a person. Whereas if you have to strive for things and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just, that's, that's my philosophy. I'm, I'm open about it. I have been for 20 years. Uh, I've, I've long ago given up the fantasy that, that it will happen. But can you imagine if every federation in the world operated like this, you know, the stimulus to tennis, because don't forget, if you know what the bonuses are, a sponsor could come in and say, okay, if you get a player, even to top 200, they're going to get, you know, a thousand quid at a thousand, they're going to get another thousand quid at 800, you know, another thousand at 600, you know, 500, they're going to get 5,000. You know, it doesn't matter. You can work out the figures yeah. in, in whatever budget you have. Yeah. All right. Then you can say, well, I'll give you, you know, uh, Dan, you have a track record of taking, you know, X amount of players to top 200 or top 300. Yeah. There's X amount, amount of money at play there just on bonuses. Yeah. We'll give you, you know, 20 grand up front for the player because, but we want the bonuses and you can, you can decide as an entrepreneur if, if you want to take that deal or not. But, you know, if, if, 
it would really, really open up the sport for the private for private enterprise because players would have money to pay academies through bonuses. Yeah. You know, the whole world, you talk about, you know, getting money into the sport. The federations are sitting on a lot of money that get targeted on 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 a few players, whereas if everything got opened up, uh, you know, and 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 there should be coach bonuses as well for for milestones reached, and and you know you could be get really imaginative with this. Okay, a player's journey started with this coach and so and so, and if they win Wimbledon, all down the line there will be bonuses for every coach you know who yeah. who was involved with this player. How exciting would it be for for a coach who, who started with a kid in mini tennis? to know that they're going to get, you know, a thousand quid if this kid, you know, wins Wimbledon. Yeah. You know, they were part of that journey, you know, and, and the player and the parents would have to nominate who the coaches are each time, you know, you log it with the LTA, who the coach is all through the journey. So you have a log of who has been involved with this player and for how long. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. There's I, one I big go. issue, Dave. There's one big issue you wouldn't be able to spend 5 million on TPMs, PPPMs, MPCs, and, and, and all of these roles, if that was the case. But look how much money you would have to add to the bonuses. I know, I know, exactly. You know? I mean, it, 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 it would be phenomenal for the growth of tennis. Yeah. It would be a stimulus package like no other. Yeah. And, and for the sport, you know, in the... In, in Britain, it, you know, but it, 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 it's a okay, bravery. So, so Dave, so let's not going to happen. But, but, but the reason, and this is, this has been one of my longer term thoughts on this. Norfolk, and, I, and I, and I am honing in a little bit on Britain now. And again, this is no knock on any individual because I strongly believe there's some fantastic individuals. But what I've seen in my, 30 years i've been around probably 30 years in from you know playing to to coaching there's always been certain people involved who in a middle manager type role so so if you have a new person come in who doesn't really know exactly how that whole british tennis ecosystem works they have to listen to somebody i guess and and the people that are involved in that there's going to be certain people that are good at having their voices heard, you know, so, and, and, and naturally, and I don't blame people for this, are protecting jobs, you know, want to, want to continue paying their own bills. We're all in this fight together. So I, I'm with people on that. So unless the whole thing is completely broken, you know, somebody comes in and just breaks the whole thing down. And in reality, that person can't be the rebuilder. <laughs> because that person, <laughs> everyone's <laughs> kind of done with that person. And then someone else comes in and builds pretty much from scratch. There's just so much scar tissue. <laughs> and and I guess potentially even people like myself and you are also potentially part of the problem because we maybe have some cynical views. You know, we, we then maybe get some, some of the cynical views come across. It's, it's almost impossible for that real true change to happen you know, unless it is complete knockdown and then let's build from afresh. And I think 
that that's where I think the big, big challenge is because somebody could, let's say you can get put in that position, but in reality, the job of you completely rebuilding when there's so many people that have been a part of that, I think you would come up with so many challenges and you'd end up <laughs> being involved in so many difficult situations. It would be very hard for you to be bringing through this positive new new movement as such. I don't know what you think of that. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, well, it's a bog. Yeah. And you very quickly get sucked into the bog and yeah. that's it. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it, it has to change, I think, with the CEO because yeah. that's the top of the tree. And the CEO has to come in with a remit that, that they, this is what they're going to do. But implementing a facilitating program is not difficult. No. You know, and a lot of these people involved, you know, could, you know, could be really energized in, in, in creating this bonus scheme and this facilitating scheme because they do know British tennis well. Uh, so rather than seeing it as a threat, just see it as an opportunity to, to, to really try, because basically what happens over and over again, you know, the system doesn't really change. They just change names for things. Yeah. You know, we've had academies before, you know, you know, elite academies, you know, you know then it's like it, it, the, the reason they broke up is because they were too claustrophobic. Then we had high performance centers, which were so big and wide and, you know, uh, you know, excellence was very difficult to, to come out of that because the resource wasn't there. Yeah. So now we go back to these two, you know, academies with, ultimate resource you know so we just flip-flopped from yeah. one you know the you know the rover program became the futures program became uh the the what was the Aegon. Aegon Star yeah or something. yeah or something you know i mean but essentially it's the same kind of you know with slightly different rules yeah. and slightly different criteria but you know the the, the system hasn't really radically ever do, well done anything radical ever yeah but you know, systems don't generally do that for the reasons that you've just pointed out. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think, you know, the important thing for, for people out, at, you know, in the field is at the end of the day, you can't do anything uh, to change it. You can talk and hopefully influence occasionally, but you got to just get on with, yeah. with your life and, and doing what you know you can do and and look you know i mean uh, i can't i can't fault the lta in terms of my career i mean they've given me a huge amount of opportunity uh over the years and you know i happen to be you know uh seen as good enough in my job to to be given these opportunities so it's 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 not all bad by any means no. you know uh it, you know, and, and, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that, that I've had from, from, the L, from the LTA. But that doesn't mean that I don't have my own mind and, and think that it could be done radically different. Yeah. You know, so, uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm grateful for the opportunities as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, they, are, they are the facilitator, not the developers, you know, and that's, that's well, that's a, that's that's that's, that's, the, that's the fundamental philosophy that yeah. needs, in my opinion, to I change. Agree. 
yeah. and and uh, you know they don't have to be seen to develop players. Yeah, they uh, they need to just become facilitators. And that doesn't need to reflect bad on anybody, other than no. just that's no. the way that, it, that that's the way that you know from a from a conceptual point of view you, yourself strongly sees that and i would certainly be of, of that opinion as well you know um dave my last my last 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 question before i move into the quick fire what is next for you over the next over the next 5 years you're going to continue on the road whilst you're developing your your online programs um you're gonna go and live in the cotswolds and put your feet up in front of the fire with john hicks which which way is it gonna go uh i can't see feet up at all <laughs> um i uh i'm definitely uh committed to to carrying on the 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 online coaching and and uh and the course i have now the, the the mindset college for athletes. I'm going to shortly uh, create mindset college for coaches, and then mindset college for business leaders, and uh, and that's a huge undertaking in itself. So that's going to definitely take my time uh, probably over the next eighteen months, uh, as well as being uh, uh, a consultant for Bath, which I absolutely love. And, uh, and, and with uh, Liam and Marcus, uh, continue doing a, a fair amount on the road with them as long as they'll have me. Uh, and, and very hopeful that, you know, that the journey with Liam is the exciting part is just beginning. Uh, I would say this, that probably uh, Liam and Marcus, my last, you know, never, never say never, but my last uh gigs of you know uh extensive travel uh, okay. i think i think once you know uh that, those journeys end uh i might go more into just purely being a, a, a consultant well a big again you you've got lots to go so it's, it's certainly not this is your life i'm not putting your your career to bed dave but you know i've certainly um you know, watch watch from afar, and you know, had the privilege to have some dinners with you, and you know, you continue to do a brilliant job. Whenever I speak to you, I always feel thought provoked. You know, I always it always makes me go away and go. Do you know what? Yeah, I wonder. And, and not that everything I've ever heard you say would I fully agree with, but I would certainly take it on board and go. It would challenge something, and and I think that's a real skill to have. You know, and I, I really yeah. do, and I, I think we can. Barry Barry Cowan always says, "Dave, you always come with ten ideas. I know I can so throw probably throw seven out, but three will really make me think." <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's that's a mass, that's a massive skill. So, thank you for all you continue to do in the sport. Um, thank keep, you. It's uh, it, it it's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, you, you know, I'm still very energized by by everything, as you hopefully can tell. Absolutely. Um, I hope the quick fire round energizes you. This is the okay, one. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> our our big fans love it. They love it. Okay. Mind or body? Uh, it has to be both. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? I've not been to the ATP Cup. Players tend to be saying, I've, I've heard on your podcast, more ATP Cup. Uh, 
coaches or certain older coaches say Davis Cup. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't know enough about the ATP Cup to to make that call. I did love Davis Cup. I'm not sure that being in one place, yeah. which has taken away the home and away, which I think was just brilliantly. I think I think it's lost something huge there. Uh, so my inkling is, you know, that maybe it'll be the ATP Cup that survives. So we're two questions into the quick fire. And you've sat <laughs> on the fence on both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, no. I tell you, no, no, you gave Sam off. No, no, but the, the, the first one you can't, you know, you know as we explained, you know, it's a, not <laughs> hard. My, my, if I have to choose mind. <laughs> okay. Hard courts or clear courts? Ooh, ooh. You know, I love tennis. So I love all surfaces for different reasons. I'd say as I've gotten older, uh, no, probably hard courts. Favourite Grand Slam? Uh, Wimbledon. Favorite quote? That's a great question. I'm going to be a little arrogant here and go with one of my own, which is do the work and good things will happen. You just never know when. Very good. Favorite book? Think and Grow Rich, I think. I'll add it to my list. There's another great book, which is uh, Ryan Halliday, which is it's to do with um, uh, the stoicism. Can't remember the title right now, but uh, a really good book. Send it to me. Injury, injury timeout or not? Uh, once only. A match? Once a match only. Warm up or not on court? I've thought about this a lot and I am very conflicted about it. Because of timing in tennis, it's so difficult to time a, a warm-up anyway. I'm going to say keep it. Serve or return? Serve. Data analysis or not? I like it as a backup to your opinion uh, to solidify what you believe is right anyway. But if I had to choose, I'd say not. If it was one or the other completely. One rule change that you would have in tennis? No more than four bounces when you're serving. Oh, I like it. And who should be our next guest? Have you had Andy? No. I want him. I want him. I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. so, so, the, so the listeners know I'm fighting hard. I've been put into agents' hands. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work my magic. I can't get direct to Andy. He's had his people that have been put in place. Um, so if everyone can just absolutely pepper him on social media to come and control the controllables, but I'm working hard. Um, I, I'd have a couple of names, a few names for you, but uh, I think Chris Kermode, who was obviously mm. chairman and CEO of the ATP. Uh, I know he's doing some consultancy work for the Monte Carlo uh, tournament now. And uh, I think he's living in Monte Carlo still. So, but he, he went through the whole British system and played and, and obviously got, will have huge insights into ATP and all the stuff that's going on with Novak. Nice. Uh, I'm sure he'd have some views there. So it could be a pretty interesting podcast and it's, you know, Chris certainly knows how to, how to talk. So 
my I like I like that one, Dave. I like that one, Dave. I'm not. It's not one that's crossed my mind. So, um, if I can use your your great network to pull some strings to get Mr. Commode on, we would we would welcome him with open hands. I will do what I can for you. Absolutely. Brilliant. So, so Dave Samuel, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, that was that was a brilliant two hours. I've taken a whole world of things. I'll be listening back. I'll be taking notes. I'll be stealing some little bits. And yeah, and and I know everyone else is going to take so much from it. So thanks so much for giving your time, Dave. Thank you. And uh, you know, I I'm sorry that it's taken this long. I hope I hope it's. Uh, I mean, I know it's. It's interesting for us to catch up. I just hope that the audience find it as interesting because, uh, you know, it's uh, we, we basically just had a fireside chat, didn't we? No, no, completely. And I think that's that's it for me. It's 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 these things are the best learning. They're the best resources because it's it's contextualized. It's you know you can go. We can go off on stories. You know we can really get to to the bottom of how your brain works and and get to the bottom of all your experience. So for me, that's going to be a brilliant, brilliant podcast. So so thank you. Good luck to Liam today. Thank and, you. You know enjoy your dry German breakfast in the hotel, <laughs> and and all the very best over the next next few weeks as well, Dave. Thanks. And, uh, you know, well done with the podcast. Uh, I, I'm certainly enjoying them and uh, I like this format and, and really well done. Thanks, Dave. Big thank you to Dave for coming on the show, giving up his time. You know, he's, he's a busy man, as you hear from the podcast. There's lots going on in his life. So, so that's greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bones to pick out. There's a lot of golden nuggets to pick out of that one. You know the the dedication that he has, the way his outlook on on the sport. You know, I thought it was really interesting. He's talking about Liam Brody ranked two hundred eighty p. Yet he sent him onto the clay courts to just develop his game. And like he said, Liam, the issue with Liam was he wanted to win or, or he, he had winning at the forefront when he went there. And I, I'm a, it's a big discussion. We talk about what's a performance coach, coach, what's a development coach. But ultimately there we have it, Dave Samuel working with Liam Brody, 280p, and he's still very much got development at the forefront of, of his coaching day and setting the schedule for him to develop, not setting the schedule for him to win or get easy points or however it might be. And that was certainly a big, big takeaway from me. The second takeaway from me, I think his, his stance on British tennis, I, I like a lot. Uh, I'm certainly in the facilitator camp. You know, I do believe that the governing body should be there to facilitate and if the governing body like the LTA is in a position where it has bigger funds than what some some federations will have then fantastic let's use that to the advantage but we really do have to avoid the entitlement that that does go hand in hand with funding players we can we can like it or lump it but the, the bottom line is it just does there's very few players that receive a high level of funding from a young age 
who, who don't end up becoming a little entitled and maybe forget the real reason why they're playing the sport. You know, if there's accountability in there with a bonus scheme, then, you know, go and get it. It's there to go and get, but it's, it's, it's on you. And uh, we've talked a lot about that in the podcast, taking the ultimate responsibility, you know, and I think that would certainly bring that through. So those were a couple of my big takeaways. I'd love to hear some of yours. Um, but till, till the next time, I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.